Hey everyone, Jeremiah here. Just wanted to give you guys a quick update. Uh, today's episode is one that's actually from Patreon that I released a while back. Reason being is that uh, uh, the next cold case episode I could get started on and actually write right now, but I'm trying to just dig up a little bit more information in terms of like updates and stuff because the, the last information I could find was from about 20 years ago, so I'm just trying to see if I can't dig up any additional information to give the case a little more life here in the modern age. But I didn't want to not give you guys an episode this month, so I decided to go ahead. This is one of my Patreon episodes. I know we released one a while back. Uh, that one was a bit more me reading verbatim off a script, so just FYI, this one might read a little different because it's more note-based me talking rather than me reading my actual script. So hopefully you guys enjoy it and you don't mind a little shake-up in format for a little bit. But hopefully within the next week or two, I will be back with an actual new case. All right. Thanks, guys. Hey, patrons. It's Jeremiah here, back finally with a bonus episode and since I've been slacking severely on these things, I went ahead and made sure I had a little bit bigger, more uh, thorough episode for you guys today. So we will go ahead and get right into it. Uh, today's episode is on the Kirtland cult out of Kirtland, Ohio. This was something I first kind of picked up on while reading about the melon heads, if you remember back to our second bonus episode, I think, I talked about the melon heads, who had been seen in the Kirtland area, and I remember when I was reading about Kirtland, it brought up this cult, and I did make a mental note of it that that's probably something I should tell you guys about in the future. So I spent a little bit of time here looking into the cult, coming up with uh, an episode for you. Uh, this is not one of the major cults out there. It never really surpasses about, I don't know, 12, 13 people. However, they do um, commit a pretty heinous crime, and that is why we are going to talk about them today. So, diving right in, we're going to go ahead and start start with uh, the head of uh, the Kirtland cult, whose name was Jeffrey Don Lundgren. Now, Jeffrey... He was born on May 3rd, 1950, in Independence, Missouri, to Don and Lois Gadbury Lundgren. Jeff's father worked in construction, while his mother was a stay-at-home mom to Jeffrey and his younger brother. The family, they were active participants in the local reorganized Church of Latter-day Saints Church, uh, or the RLDS, which was kind of a splinter off of the Mormon Church, now it um, it's now it is known as the Community of Christ. I couldn't find an easy description on how the RLDS works, but it, but it essentially appears that they keep like several aspects from the Mormon Church, but their beliefs are more in line with modern mainstream Protestant Christianity, which that might mean a little more to you guys than me. I don't know your beliefs. I'm not exactly a church-going guy, and everything I know about the Mormons definitely comes from podcasts I've listened to about Mormonism. But, 
either way, uh, we will carry on. But uh, Jeff's upbringing was fairly unbalanced. His mom, Lois, was very distant. And his father, Don, uh, was often pretty strict and domineering. He would usually implement strict punishments for minor infractions. Uh, there are reports of abuse, but that only apparently comes from Jeff Lundgren, and it doesn't appear to be corroborated by anyone else. And Jeff was reportedly a loner in his teen years with very few friends. There is one report of a neighbor seeing him nailing a rabbit to a piece of wood before beating it to death, but again, no verification. But considering where this guy goes down the road, I also wouldn't be surprised. That is definitely one of our telltale signs of future serial killers. As a young boy, uh, Jeff's father, Don, would eventually share his passion of hunting and guns with Jeffrey, teaching him how to care for and maintain firearms, and eventually how to use them for survival and hunting. After graduation, Jeff would attend Central Missouri State University, majoring in electronics. Uh, during his sophomore year, he spent most of his free time at an RLDS student house. It was there that he met uh, a future friend and cult member, Keith Johnson, as well as Alice Keeler. Jeff and Alice would fall in love, and Alice, <clears throat> and in early 1970, Alice would become pregnant with Jeff's child, with the couple marrying later in the year. Out of a need to support his family, Jeff would enroll in the U.S. Navy, and in December of 1970, their first child, a boy, would be born. Jeff would serve four years in the Navy before receiving an honorable discharge in July of 1974, with Alice giving birth to a second son two weeks prior. Jeff would then settle his family in San Diego, California, but poor spending habits on Jeff's part, as well as embezzlement from jobs, according to some sources, forced the Lundgrens to move to Independence, Missouri. In 1979, Alice would give birth to a third child, a daughter. Despite it being his own fault, Jeff would soon grow frustrated by the family's money problems and allegedly became abusive after the birth of their daughter. According to hospital records, Alice was hospitalized for a ruptured spleen, which may have been caused by Lundgren pushing her into a closet door handle. It's also been said that he pushed Alice down the stairs. In 1980, the couple would have their fourth child, this time another boy. In 1981, as he was still very connected to the church, Jeff was asked by the RLDS to become a lay preacher, essentially a person authorized to teach out of the Bible and scripture but not an actual, like, ordained, ordained minister. So, basically, I think they can, like, teach classes and stuff, but they're not, you know, they're not up there on Sunday morning uh, preaching the good word out of the book. But, uh, over time, Jeff, though, would soon become disenfranchised with the church and their, quote-unquote, liberal views, such as letting women be ordained, or as something that would be very progressive at this time, its acceptance of the LGBT community into their ranks, which these were things that had yet to be accepted in standard or mainstream Mormonism. Jeff felt 
that the scripture contained the truth, and it was now his duty to find the answers. He would start a Mormon splinter group and begin holding study groups in his home and speaking his interpretations of the culture. He would attract a number of individuals who seemed to truly believe he was some sort of prophet, who then began donating money to support the Lundgren family. Over time, as is common with most people posing as prophets, he began wanting more money and was unhappy with what his followers could afford to give him. At this point, he decided to move to Kirtland, Ohio, to supposedly be, quote, closer to God. So what we're seeing here, real quick before I carry on, and I'm not a cult expert, but just something if you do any time, spend any time looking at small cults, small groups of people, um, you know, Branch Davidians, uh, you know, David Koresh, for a good example. Um, these people, however they do it through their being in, enigmatic or whatever, they get a group of followers, and at which point they can usually talk these followers for whatever reason into, you know, giving them their their goods, their money, things like that. So this, is, this isn't exactly uncommon behavior. Uh, I think in Jeff's case, he definitely seems to... Um, not be happy with the control he's getting. So at this point, he decides he wants more, he wants to do more, so he's going to move to the city of Kirtland, which is, as I'll discuss here in a second, is pretty important in the the annals of Mormon history. So uh, Kirtland is, is a city in Lake County in northeastern Ohio. As of the 1980 census, so around the time Jeff would be going there, it had about 6,000 people, and it was the home of the Latter-day Saints, or the Mormons, from 1831 to 1838. Uh, Jeff Lundgren, he came to Kirtland in 1984, and began to work for the Kirtland Temple. So the Kirtland Temple, it uh, began construction in 19, or excuse me, 1832, um, and then after the Mormons were ran out of Ohio, it was kind of owned by different uh, split factions until falling under the ownership of the RLDS in 1901 after a lengthy legal battle with the state of Ohio. Jeff would later say that after touring the small town, he felt an undeniable urge to stop at Chaplin Forest, a county park located less than five miles from the Kirtland Temple. It was here Jeff would later tell his followers that he discovered where the Book of Mormon plates had been buried after being brought over from the Holy Land. Uh, the plates are, um, again, something I'm not particularly qualified to explain, um, but it is important to Latter-day Saint members. And at the end of this, I'll um, offer you a resource or two where you can kind of go uh, learn the history of the of the Mormon Church and things like that, and, and Joseph Smith and the plates and all that good stuff. But uh, anyway, uh, Jeff was offered a position as a tour guide at the Kirtland Temple, which came with free home and board in a home behind the temple, as well as a meager $125 a week salary. Uh, some reports kind of sh state that uh, Alice and Jeff were working at the temple, so I don't know if they were making $125 a week each, or if that was between the two of them. 
But uh, either way, Jeff again began teaching sermons from his home, and he began teaching the concept of chiastic interpretation, or dividing the word, to interpret scripture. Um, I the the dividing the word or chiastic interpretation. I literally am going to pull straight from Jeff Lundgren's Wikipedia page and just kind of read what it says on this particular topic because I don't know a better way to explain it. But uh, okay, so from Wikipedia, Lundgren falsely claimed to have created this interpretative method. The foundation was that in everything created by God, the right side is a mirror image, and therefore, scripture had to be reinterpreted using the same method. Lundgren cited the Kirtland Temple as an example, because the right side was a mirror image of the left. To apply this concept to scripture, one takes a sentence from scripture. If the sentence before and after are consistent, the center sentence is the truth. When the sentences before and after conflict, the center sentence is a lie. So from what I can best understand is he's just taking a few lines out of the Bible or Book of Mormon or scripture or whatever, and he's just taking random lines, finding ones that work, don't work, to his whim, and twisting them the way he needs to. Once again, something very common with cult leaders, especially ones claiming to be prophets. From 1984 to circa 1987, Jeffrey worked for the temple and began embezzling money, as well as ramping up his sermons and attracting followers. At the end of it all, he would have somewhere around 12 follow followers, including married couples as well as their children. In 1986, Jeffrey began to have, quote, visions and revelations that would inform him of two potential dates that would mark the return of Jesus Christ. Jeff claimed that Jesus would at that time destroy everyone except those deemed righteous inside the Kirtland Temple. When both dates for Christ's return failed, because Lundgren is a fraud, Lundgren's attention turned to a vision he had that the group was to seize the Kirtland Temple on May 3rd, 1988. Also, Jeff Lundgren's birthday. The plan involved formulating a hit list in which no less than 10 RLDS church officials and area residents, along with anyone who got in their way, were to be executed in what, in what was called a cleansing, which would then, quote, trigger an apocalypse. In preparation, the cult began to build an arsenal, which is something, once again, also very common in, you know, religious cults especially small militant ones or small uh, ones with like a totalitarian leader like Jeff Lundgren. But um, outside of building the arsenal, they also marched in uniform, trained themselves to load and unload guns quickly, did calisthenics, studied military tactics, and watched violent movies in preparation for combat. Uh, during January of 1987, rumors were rampant in the upper echelon of the RLDS concerning Jeff's heretical teachings. Kirtland Police Chief Dennis Yarborough had also heard the rumors of Lundgren's activities and questioned him, but this ultimately led nowhere. In February of 87, Jeff instructed Dennis and Tanya Patrick, two members of the cult, 
to take up residence in an apartment building directly across from the Kirtland Police Station in order to keep an eye on them. In 1987, uh, a few new members came, um, and these ones are going to be some of the most important ones in a very tragic way to the story. But uh, in April of 1987, Dennis and Cheryl Avery and their three daughters relocated to Kirtland from Independence, Missouri. Cheryl Lynn Bailey Avery had been born in Washington State in 1947. Um, she was a school teacher, and she had met Dennis Leroy Avery, some seven years her senior, in 1970. The couple was married shortly after, where they would then have three daughters. Trina Denise in 1974, Rebecca Lynn in 1976, and Karen Diane in 1982. Dennis and Cheryl Avery had become involved with the Lundrens during Jeff's scripture classes in Independence. Unbeknownst to them, though, Jeff and Alice did not particularly like the Averys and would oftentimes chastise them, claiming that Dennis was weak and should not allow his wife to make all the decisions in his family. Shortly after the Averys arrived in Kirtland, Alice did confront Jeff and ask him why he had allowed them to come, to which Jeff had replied, so I can get their money. The Averys had made $19,000 from the sale of their home before moving from Independence, which they turned over $10,000 of the money to Jeff after he convinced them that he would take care of their needs. So once again, kind of another, you know, cult tactic, cult leader tactic, um, taking money, giving their belongings, and then promising, you know, them the future that he'll take care of them because, you know, that's what he does, being their leader or their prophet or their messiah. In September of 1987, the RLDS recognized the extent of Jeff's teachings and revoked his ministerial power. He was also let go um, from working at the Kirtland Temple under the suspicion of theft. It's believed that through his embezzlement, Jeff made somewhere between 25000 to $40,000. At this point, he would just withdraw his membership altogether. So at this point, without a home or a place to house his followers, Jeff would rent a house at 8671 Euclid Chardon Road outside of Kirtland, Ohio. Um, everybody, I think for the most part, would move into this home, except, oddly enough, the Averys, who would still live outside of the house. So at this point, Jeff's arsenal began to grow at a pretty uh, accelerated rate. His eldest son, Damon, he was put in charge of training the men in combat, as well as, you know, marksmanship, probably like sharpshooting or just being able to hit their targets. They would also run, you know, mock scenarios, both on the farm and at the temple at night when no one was there. Uh, there were still plans to take the temple, and several hours were spent kind of looking over diagrams and building and maps of the area. So it was at this point that Jeff was really becoming someone to be concerned about rather than just, you know, kind of a mad preacher. He's really becoming someone that... He's definitely becoming unhinged now that he's definitely without a job, without any oversight, and out on his own. So in February of 1988... A member of the cult, Kevin Curry, 
uh, did decide to leave the group, becoming very disenfranchised with Jeff's teachings. So he kind of split, covered his tracks, and left for Buffalo, New York. Um, however, he kind of had a guilty conscience knowing what Jeff was potentially planning. So at that point, he did contact the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Um, the Bureau assumed it was a prank, and it just, it just decided to pass the information over to Kirtland Police Chief Dennis Yarborough. Yarborough, who had been the chief of Kirtland PD for nearly a dozen years, was already fairly suspicious of Jeff Lundgren, so upon receiving the FBI tax, he was convinced that it was a serious threat and started a little bit more of an investigation into Jeff Lundgren and his followers. Uh, some sources had also noted that even prior to this phone call, there had been a lot of complaints about you know, gunshots and excessive amount of gunshots and people at the uh, Kirtland Colt farm. So he, he, he was already kind of on to things. As I said earlier, he had already questioned Jeff once. So while the FBI is not taking things too seriously, it appears that at least this detective or this police chief was. Throughout the remainder of the summer of 88, Jeff and his followers, they uh, regularly gathered at the rented farmhouse for scripture studies that often lasted for hours. Um, at this point, Lundgren was starting to frequently wear military fatigues during his sessions and would keep a loaded pistol within reach at all times. Jeff would start to feed the group a mixture of biblical and Mormon scriptures with all interpretations made to help Jeff meet his goals. Most anything could be a sin, adding too much garlic to a meal, as Dennis Avery did at times, or keeping money for oneself. Initially, in his sermons and revelations, Lundgren had promised his followers he would take them to see God. To make the journey, he said, the cult first had to seize the Kirtland Temple and kill anyone who tried to stop them. Jeff began to revise his plan and did claim to have another vision. A vision that told him the sacrifice of the Avery family would be enough for the group to reach their goal. Jeff felt Cheryl Avery was headstrong and that her children were unruly. Dennis was beginning to question Jeff's teachings during class. No one had ever questioned Jeff's word, and the others in the group uh, really couldn't quite understand or comprehend why he was doing this in the first place. The group considered all the traits the Avery family showed as extremely sinful, and in Jeff's eyes, their death could cause the others to fear and respect him. So, once again, um, going back to uh, cult activity, especially in cult leaders, you know, they, they want to maintain control. They don't want unruliness. Um, and he, you know, he can see some cracks potentially starting to fade here. So he's starting to kind of test the bounds and test what his people are willing to do. Something sort of similar with Jim Jones, who ran the People's Temple. You know, obviously they didn't just drink Kool-Aid or Flavor-Aid for the first time and commit suicide. He had tested them for quite a long time prior to that, as well as several other. This is This is very common cult leader activity. I mean, Jeff's obviously very militant as well, and he has a lot of, I think, delusions going on, <laughs> which is why he's taking a very militaristic approach to everything. I mean, 
he's not the first cult leader to stockpile guns. Like I said, uh, David Koresh, I mean, they were mostly selling guns to live uh, or to support their means. But um, in this case, Koresh always talked about the 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 authorities coming for them. In this case, Jeff has been talking very, very greatly about you know attacking those in power as well as those within the group who are starting to defy him. So it's clearly here that he's completely lost his marbles. But on uh, April 10th, 1989, Jeff ordered two members to begin digging a pit in the barn to conceal the bodies. The men were instructed to make certain that they were out of the barn whenever Dennis was around the house. Uh, Jeff Lundgren planned to abandon the farm after the murders were committed. Uh, they instructed the women of the house to begin packing all of the belongings. Jeff informed the Averys that the group was going on a quote-unquote wilderness retreat and they should prepare to leave Kirtland. Over the next four days, a roughly six feet by seven feet by four feet pit was dug. And then on April 17th, 1989, the rest of Jeff's plan was put into action. So, first there was a congregation dinner where everybody uh, from the group came. They ate, and you know they acted like it was a normal time, just final meal before going off on their excursion. Jeff then took all the men to the barn, except for Dennis Avery, obviously, and explained that they would lead the Averys to the barn, one by one, find them, place them in the pit, and execute them. Something I should have prefaced with prior to this. Obviously, everyone here is about to get murdered, and there will be some descriptions of violence against children, although I will, for the most part, keep it pretty light. But just, just a heads up. So Dennis Avery was first called to the barn under the guise of helping to load equipment for the wilderness retreat. They first attempted to restrain him with a stun gun, but the gun was low voltage and only caused him to struggle. He was eventually restrained, bound with duct tape, and thrown into the pit, where he was then shot by Jeff Lundgren with a 45 Colt Combat Elite handgun. A chainsaw was ran during the firing as to muffle the gunshots, so the rest of the Avery family did not hear. Next was Cheryl. She was brought out under the premise of Dennis needing help. Once again, the stun gun failed, and she struggled. Uh, she was eventually bound and thrown in the pit. Once again, executed while the chainsaw ran. Next were the children. 15-year-old Trina, 13-year-old Rebecca, and 6-year-old Karen. They were brought out, one by one, under the guise of playing hide-and-seek and seeing the horses. They were each bound and executed while the chainsaw ran. All three died instantly, except for Rebecca, who was struck in the chest and, being the asshole that Lundgren was, couldn't even muster a mercy kill and forced her to bleed out while she gasped. The bodies, over the next several hours, were covered with lime and dirt. Alice, who had left with a lot of the young children um, as to not let them know what was going on, uh, soon returned and a late sermon was held. At one point, Lundgren asked each person in the room to relate their feelings about what had taken place. Only one member 
had enough courage to speak, in which they stated, quote, No one should have to die that way. With Jeff Lundgren simply stating, quote, It had to be done. It was God's will. So on April 18th, the next day, the group broke into smaller groups, which left for the still-planned wilderness excursion at different times throughout the day. And they were instructed to meet at a restaurant in Pennsylvania for further instruction. Jeff decided the group would head for West Virginia, collect their thoughts, and await a sign from God that would instruct him on where to find the quote-unquote golden sword, which some thought to be the Sword of Laban, spoken of in the Book of Mormon. Jeff believed that the sword would rest with the golden plates, from which Joseph Smith is believed to have translated the Book of Mormon. Jeff eventually settled on a secluded campsite east of Davis, West Virginia, located in the Cannon Valley. The area sits 3,200 feet above sea level, surrounded by the Appalachian Mountains. Once at the camp, Jeff, being the asshole that he is, was high on pride over the murder of the Avery family. And he was ecstatic that some members were becoming deathly afraid of him, as he was becoming more and more callous and cold in his demeanor. He would also brag to members that had not been present at the murders how each of the Averys had died and how he had snuffed out their lives without a shred of remorse. The camp was quickly converted into a military-style compound. Foxholes were dug and guards were posted on a rotating basis. The men of the group were instructed to use deadly force if anyone attempted to enter the camp, and anti-aircraft submachine guns was also set up in order to shoot down helicopters in the case that law enforcement attempted to drop in unexpectedly. Jeff's teachings were also becoming as radical as his attitude had become. Married men of the group were ordered to turn their wives over to Jeff in order to be cleansed with his seed. And he informed the men that anyone who chose not to follow his instructions would meet the same fate as the Averys. At this point, cracks are starting to show, and many members began to doubt Jeff's status as a prophet. In October of 1989, winter was beginning to approach, and funds were running low. Jeff decided the group would abandon the campsite and travel to Missouri. A friend of one of the cult members owned a barn outside of Chilowee and gave the group permission to use it. The group stayed in the barn for approximately a week, before Jeff decided they should break up for the winter and reconvene in the summer for another excursion. Every man was instructed to get a job, provide for his family, and naturally save money to turn over to Jeff when they all came back. At this point, five members left the group at the end of October, including two women who were pregnant with Jeff's children. In December of 1989, Jeff was starting to worry that maybe his former followers might rat him out to authorities with information on the murder of the Averys. So the Lundgrens and member Danny Kraft decided to hide out in Southern California and wait to see what would transpire. They would establish themselves in a San Diego suburb, and then Jeff would rent out a storage locker and stash pretty much all of his guns and supplies. Keith Johnson, who... Dennis had met all the way back in college, and who was a member of the cult, and involved in the Avery murders, decided that he could not handle what he knew anymore, 
and contacted an informant friend who arranged a meeting with Kansas City FBI agents. Keith would tell them everything he knew about Jeff Lundgren and the Avery family, and for whatever reason, investigators were at first skeptical, but had Keith drop a map of where the bodies were buried and fax it to the FBI office in Cleveland. The officers in Cleveland also decided that this wasn't much of a concern and sent the info to the Kirtland Police Department. Chief Yarborough, who had been watching Jeff Lundgren closely already, uh, received word of the tip, and he assigned Deputy Ron Andalisk to check on the whereabouts of the Avery family. When the Averys were unable to be located through friends and family members, he ended up contacting Stan Skirbis, who owned the house that Jeffrey Lundgren had been renting, and requested permission to search the property. The deputy was given permission, and on January 3, 1990, Yarborough and Andalisk took the map Keith Johnson had drawn of the barn and located an area in the northeast corner that appeared to have been disturbed. An excavation would be performed, and the grisly grave of the Avery family would be discovered. Following the discovery, late county prosecutor Stephen Law Tourette would issue warrants for cult members Jeffrey Lundgren, Alice Lundgren, Damon Lundgren, Ron Luff, Susan Luff, Richard Brand, Greg Winship, Danny Kraft, Deborah Olivares, Sharon Blunchsey, Dennis Patrick, Tanya Patrick, and Katherine Johnson. So you might notice at this point, this is the first time I've really named a majority of the cult members. That was just to kind of keep a lot of the names out throughout the earlier narrative. Because really Jeff, for the most part, is the most important guy here. And I didn't want to start confusing everybody with a bunch of names. But these would all be... This isn't every cult member, but I believe this is all the names of people who were in some way involved with the Avery's murder. So the warrants were then faxed to Kansas City, and by mid-afternoon, Ron Love, Susan Love, Dennis Patrick, Tanya Patrick, and Deborah Olivieres had been placed under arrest and taken to the Jackson County Jail to await arraignment. The following day, Sharon Blunchley, Richard Brand, and Greg Winship turned themselves over to the authorities. In January of 1990, Jeff contacted his mother-in-law, Donna Keeler, and asked her to drive to California and pick up her grandchildren. Following the call, Donna contacted the federal law enforcement officials in Kansas City and relayed the information to ATF agents. Jeff had instructed Donna to drive west toward San Diego and had provided her with a telephone number so that she could contact him upon her arrival and take custody of the children. Uh, the phone number Jeff had provided was traced back to a Santa Fe motel, just six miles north of the Mexican border. Ohio FBI agent Rick Van Halst immediately boarded a plane and flew to San Diego to supervise the arrest. As agents surrounded the motel, they spotted Jeff using a payphone in the lobby. Five agents quickly converged on the phone booth and arrested Jeff Lundgren. At the same time, Agents raided his motel room and found Alice, Damon, and the younger children watching television. Damon and Alice were taken with no resistance. The first words to come out of Damon's mouth, after officials stormed the room, deciding to very quickly throw his father under the bus, was, 
quote, I didn't do the actual shooting. During a search of the room, agents confiscated two 44 Magnum revolvers, a 45 caliber handgun, an AR-15 assault rifle, hundreds of rounds of ammunition, camouflage clothing, maps, a storage locker receipt, and various Mormon Bibles. Upon completion of the search, investigators did follow up with the storage locker receipt and discovered two trunks of gunpowder, hundreds of rounds of ammunition, and a paramilitary semi-automatic rifle, two long guns, and a 9mm semi-automatic handgun. Still at large at this point were Danny Kraft and Kathy Johnson. On January 9th, a maid at a hotel in Chula Vista found two handguns, a large 50 caliber submachine gun, hundreds of rounds of ammunition, and documents identifying the occupants of the room as being Kathy Johnson and Danny Kraft. On January 10th, a San Diego patrol unit spotted Danny and Kathy traveling on Route 78 in Danny's pickup. They arrested the pair without incident. In March of 1990, Richard Brand pleaded guilty to five counts of murder in exchange for leniency under the premise he would cooperate with the state and their investigation. From April to May 1990, Greg Winship, Sharon Blunchke, Susie Luff, and Debbie Olivieres all accepted plea bargains offered by the prosecution. Greg pleaded guilty to five counts of murder, while Sharon, Susie, and Debbie pleaded guilty to five counts each of conspiracy to commit aggravated murder. In July of 1990, Alice Lundgren went to trial. Uh, defense attorneys argued that she was an unwilling participant. Alice herself testifies that she was threatened and scared for her life. However, she was reportedly smiling when her guilty verdict was read. Alice received five life sentences, which came to 140 years to life, for conspiracy, complicity, and kidnapping. In September, the jury found Damon Lundgren guilty of kidnapping and aggravated murder in the deaths of Dennis, Becky, Trina, and Karen. However, he was strangely acquitted of the death of Cheryl Avery, although prosecutors thought that, for whatever reason, the jury believed Damon did not actively participate in Cheryl's murder. And he was sentenced to 20 years to life for each count of aggravated murder. In October of 1990, Dennis and Tanya Patrick pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice and were each placed on probation for a period of 18 months. In November, Danny Kraft pleaded guilty to five counts of aggravated murder and five counts of kidnapping. In November of 1990, Danny Kraft pleaded guilty to five counts of aggravated murder and five counts of kidnapping. He was sentenced to serve 20 years on each of the counts through five concurrently with each other and terms of 10 to 20 years on each counts of six through 10. Um, and they would all be served concurrently, which basically means he's never getting out of jail. Uh, in December, <laughs> I don't know why, each, each person's sentences got explained weirdly different, and I don't know why. But in December of 1990, Ronald Luff was sentenced to 170 years to life. In January of 1991, Kathy Johnson, Richard Brand, Greg Winship, Sharon Blunchski, Susie Luff, and Debbie Olivieres were handed down their sentences. 
Debbie, Sharon, and Susie were given 7 to 25 years, and Greg was sentenced to 20 years to life, consecutively, for each murder count. Richard received 15 years to life, and Kathy was sentenced to one year. Now, going back to August of 1990, because you're probably wondering what happened to Jeffrey Lundgren. So his, I just wanted to save him for last, um, but his, uh, his trial was in August of 1990. Several law enforcement and medical examiner members, as well as former cult members, testified on behalf of the prosecution. There were no witnesses for the defense, and Jeff Lundgren refused to testify on his own behalf. On August 29th, after just two hours of deliberation, the jury found Jeffrey Don Lundgren guilty on all counts. Jeff showed little to no emotion as the verdicts were read. The penalty phase was set to begin then in September on the 17th. While Jeff never took the stand to testify during his trial, he did decide to take the stand and speak during his penalty phase, and in what I can only imagine was a mind-numbingly long five-hour statement, he explained that he considered himself a prophet, and God had told him through interpretation of scripture to kill the Averys. Dennis, Jeff stated, was a false prophet and had to be killed along with his family. He was ultimately sentenced to death. On October 24, 2006, Jeffrey Don Lundgren was executed in the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility in Lucasville. Nobody claimed his body, and he was buried in the prison cemetery. Um, after that, the only other thing to note with the prisoners is in 2010 and 2011, the five members who did accept plea agreements were granted parole. And that's basically the uh, story of the Kirtland cult. I don't know that there's much to really take away from this. Uh, I'm not an expert on cults. I, I kind of know why people might fall for them. You know, people, especially in the religious community, which I, I myself am atheist, uh, full disclosure, but I don't wrong anybody for believing something. And I know that sometimes it's hard to find a community for some people or uh, some people are looking for answers and they are easily swayed into maybe less than desirable circumstances. And that's obviously what happened here with Jeff Lundgren. You know, I brought up David Koresh earlier, if you're familiar with Waco. He is a guy who, for all, everything that happened, I think he might have had to screw loose. And I do truly believe that he might have thought he was actually some sort of messiah. In Jeffrey Lundgren's case, uh, he, I think he was just greedy and violent and was looking for ways to get an outlet in both those areas. I'm not really sure he actually believed what he was teaching. He might have. But either way, he knew how to weaponize it, and he clearly he clearly was chasing something, um, and that's why he just felt he had to take from his from his his members as well as you know start an imaginary war in his head. It's it's a weird thing. Uh, cults are hard to understand, truly. Uh, <laughs> but I'm not going to speak too hard on, uh, too much on it. Um, the matter of fact here is, you know, this man, his teachings, his manipulation, it, it did lead to the death of an entire family. And that is the most unfortunate thing here. But if you're looking for 
any sort of further information, uh, there's quite a bit out here. I took a lot of this. The most thorough thing I found was from Crime Journal, and I'll post a link to that. It uh, it's from like that. It was written before Jeff was even executed, but it definitely seemed to be the most thorough and more most consistent with this information. I had to, I had a few other few other sources such as Wikipedia or various news articles, but the the Crime Journal article it's about 15 pages long. It uh, it was definitely the most thorough and the most informative. Um, if you're if you're looking for some explanation on the Mormon stuff, I'm not your guy. My <laughs> my own personal recommendation, if you want to know the history of Mormonism and you want uh, a little bit more uh, levity and you know some humor brought to it, I would highly recommend checking out last podcast on the left's series on Mormonism. It's about five episodes, but it's very informative. Uh, I do know that it wasn't always as loving and happy as it is now. It does have kind of a violent history, which I think is kind of what Jeff was pulling from here. Um, and if you want to see some more on that, that, that thought process, I would recommend watching uh, Under the Banner of Heaven on Hulu with uh, Andrew Garfield. It's, it's based off a true story from Utah involving um, fundamental fundamentalists in the Mormon church and another violent crime. But uh, that is what I have for you guys today. Hopefully you found this informative. Uh, hopefully I didn't rush. This ended up being a lot longer than I intended on it, so hopefully I didn't rush or speak too fast. Um, and if you have any questions, feel free, or a clarification on anything, feel free to, to post on here on Patreon, or you can email me. Um, I'm hoping that next week, I, I'd like to do before the end of the month, but it might be more like next Friday into June, I'll have another episode out for you guys. Um, there's some exciting stuff going forward. I'd like to try to get two June episodes out, but um, I know in June, towards the end of June, me and several other podcasters are having a, um excursion here in Iowa, so you'll see more on that coming coming later. But uh, once again, I'm sorry for the delays and I, I honestly probably kind of half-assed bonus episodes that I did put out the last couple times. But I hope you enjoyed this one. I hope you found it informative. And uh, thank you once again for your contributions. And uh, you will all be hearing from me again soon. All right. Thanks, guys.